Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late. The train's Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. It's Employee of the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And on this episode, I sat down with Ada Calhoun, who um, has a unbelievable book out right now. Uh, it's called St. Mark's is Dead. I say unbelievable, but it is true. It is entirely possible to get so immersed in a um, history book for someone like me who loves biographies. Um, this is a biography of New York. And while it is a Valentine, it is a thoughtful, nuanced one of um, New York and just perfect for anyone who isn't normally attracted to history books um, or is a lover of New, of New York or music or commerce or religion because um, it covers all of these as well as immigrant life um, and gentrification um, since the beginning of its time. So you, you go out and get the book. Um, but it was fascinating to speak with Ada about her career because she's one of the few people I know who really makes a career at being a freelance writer and you'll um, hear about how hard she works and how many different things she's doing at once everything from having a USC Annenberg National Health Journalism Fellowship um, to ghostwriting tons of books to working with Tim Gunn um, on three of his books so far as well as a Kindle single um, and writing for a ton of places, New York Times to New York Magazine. She currently, uh, not just New York <laughs> places, sorry that I said that, Boston Globe, and she also started out at the Austin Chronicle and many others, um, as well as major magazines um, like O oh, and The New Yorker and Cosmopolitan. Um, and her most recent modern love um, piece has been turned into a book uh, which is her next book. Did I mention she had a concentration in Sanskrit in college? These are some of the things we touch upon. Uh, enjoy our interview. So I wanted to just just start actually um, in your early 20s when you, you first were writing for the Austin Chronicle. Mm-hmm. Um, you changed your name and, and got a pen name. And I wanted to talk about um, the origin of uh, the decision to do that. Oh, sure. Yeah, I wrote a story for... Um Oh, Oprah's magazine about it um, because I my my father's a writer. He writes um, now for the New Yorker. He's the art critic for the New Yorker, and um, he was he had been at the. I mean, he's won a Guggenheim Award. He was at the New York Magazine and Village Voice. At the Village Voice, yeah. The, at the Village Voice mm-hmm. is where he won so the that's award. When I was, but he wrote for the New York Times too, right? He wrote for the Times, yeah, yeah. early on, and then he was um, my whole childhood. He was at the Voice. Got it. And so that's what I always thought of him as was the Village Voice art critic. And then um, I guess what was it like. 15 years ago or yeah. so he started working for the New Yorker um, but he was you know in in New York and around people we knew he was a well-known writer and so um, I was always a little bit gun shy about writing under that name and then once I was at the Austin Chronicle I was filling out the W9 and they, they had that line doing business as which yes. I didn't DBA. even know about DBA it changed my life so I just filled in um, my first name and my middle name and then that, since then, I've been writing under that, and it's been very liberating. I, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about it because it, it's it's um, it's such a fascinating thing. Where um, you know, I was wondering, was it a fear of nepotism? What was the fear for you 
because the truth is, is at the end of the day, you have to write. So meaning like um, someone can uh, become the, if you become the Prince of England, (laughs) it's purely because of where you were born. But in order for your article to, to get published, it's a thousand percent dependent on your writing. Yeah. Meaning, meaning maybe it helps you get your foot in the door and I'm sure it opened your um, world to mm-hmm. seeing what it's actually like to be a writer. Right. Um, but the actual work itself is still dependent on you whether or not your last name is Rockefeller or, um, you know, um, Bloom or King right. or Calhoun. Yeah, I think I just didn't want to be compared to him for one mm-hmm. thing. He, you know, he had a 30 two-year head start on me and I just I didn't like the idea people sometimes when they found out I was working um as a reporter they would say oh chip off the old block or things like that and it just drove me crazy because we don't have a lot in common and our writing's very different and I just the comparison just really grated on me and then also I was really afraid that any success I had would be um perceived as or would be because uh, people would recognize his name and give me a job or give me work and so I thought well I'd really I don't want to have that as a concern, so I'll just write under my own name, and then, um, then nobody will know. And actually, it's like I got called into the New Yorker for a job interview, and uh, they had no idea we were related, and that felt really good. That is, it is fascinating because I my family has had so many phenomenally successful people in it, uh-huh. and so then people will um, they should project that I'm also brilliant. That, yeah, that should well, obviously be coming out, but but um, they'll project that I'm very wealthy or something like that. Oh, uh-huh. and like I don't have anything, and yeah. so it's like it's just a, so I completely understand from that perspective mm-hmm. of um, being like you know I wish I wish that I was from that branch or right. <laughs> that my parents had saved better or something, but that's not my actual yeah. um, background. But at the same time, I do feel an enormous amount of pride. Um, in learning about these people and being exposed to them and seeing um, the possibilities. And so I never want to take that aspect for granted um, because that in and of itself is a, to me, um, how I grew up defining class was not necessarily by money as much as um, cultural capital. Right. Um, And so, so in those parts I feel both pride and and enormous um, admiration. Yeah. Um, But I completely understand on the (laughs) other side. Now I'm very proud, you know, and I dedicated the book to my parents. Yes. um, And they are they're in the book, obviously, because they've lived on St. Mark's Place for, you know, 40 some odd years. Um, So now it's like, you know, coming out as his daughter. I'm very, you know, I'm very proud of him. And um, and it, it feels much more comfortable. I I also was wondering if having I don't want to say a double life but but certainly a you know a double having that separation between church and state uh-huh. um, if that gave you insight when you were interviewing uh, celebrities oh huh maybe yeah I think that's probably true I hadn't even thought about it until now you know understanding the duality of like this is my persona yes. at work and this is who I am yeah no I think home. it did create this sort of public private split in a nice and relaxing way so I'm going to jump around a little bit um uh, I really wanted to hear about being a crime reporter at the New York Post best job ever how did you get that job (laughs) because you had been working with Tim Gunn before that yeah I was ghostwriting a bunch this was starting in 2009 I left working at magazines and I was um working as a ghostwriter and then I was between books um and I needed some money and I was on Media Bistro and just looking through writing jobs and there aren't very many. And you're also the first person I think I've ever met who actually got a job off Media I Bistro. I think I've gotten all my jobs off of Media Bistro. Isn't wow. that hilarious? Yes. Like, nerve. I got from, when I was at New York Magazine, I, f- I saw that they were hiring on Media Bistro. Wait, let's go back to that. Let's go back to nerve. Because yeah. that's actually how I came to know you. Oh, right. Um, yeah, I was. I wrote something for Tobin. Oh, sure. Maybe, who's, who's now, yeah. I believe, at... Um, in Marfa. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but so, okay, so you had written New York Magazine and then you left it. Were you full-time at New York Magazine? I was full-time. I was an assistant editor. I did the theater listings. Wow. So I did a lot of celebrity interviews and um, went to see a lot of shows. And then, and how old were you when you were doing those? Early 20s. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, it what was What a fun. dream job. Yeah, yeah. So you got paid to go out to the theater. Yes, got paid to go. And I went probably six nights a week. I tried to see everything. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so why did you leave? I couldn't get anything in the magazine. I was pitching like 10 stories a week, and they just didn't want any of it. And so I was really frustrated, and I thought, I need to go somewhere that will let me write more. And so um, Nerve, I had always really liked, and my friend Lisa Carver was writing for Nerve. And so when I saw it on Media Bistro, it's like an ad for Media Bistro, um, I totally just sent them my resume and then they called me in and I wound up working there for years for like a long time. I love all of this. For people who don't know, Nerve was, first of all, Nerve had a, a dating site that was actually very hip at the time. It was sort of one of the first, it was. you know, digital online sites and and it um, was more subversive, I thought, than a, a lot of things that were going on in the ways yes. that I mm-hmm. believe the voice was when it started. Yes. Um, and it is also fascinating to know that here you are at a highly respected, well-pedigreed um, establishment like New York Magazine and even still you say you know what in order for me to actually write mm-hmm. I'm going to take a chance on this what would have been a very new operation in terms of its status let's mm-hmm. say yeah no it definitely was a step down as far as status went but um, but I got to write so much I mean I wound up doing this blog there where I wrote eight posts a week eight posts a day so it's like 40 posts a week um, called Scanner and that wound up becoming this big traffic driver and was really fun to do and then I was writing personal essays like every month and I was editing all the cultural content and editing these reported pieces and it was really exciting like I just it was like going to graduate school and were you married at the time I got married while I was there while you were there the reason I ask is because then Babel did it come out of nerve it did yeah can you talk a little bit about becoming sure I was pregnant and they wanted to spin off various sites um, from Nerve. And the first one, they were like, oh, we need to spin off a baby site. And you're pregnant, so you're going to run it. And I didn't want to at all because I thought, I still know about sex. I can still edit a sex magazine. Um, but they were pretty adamant. So the due date, my due date was the same as the magazine's um, launch date <laughs> originally. And It seems um, like they understood a lot about pregnancy by doing <laughs> those two together. <laughs> so anyway, um, but it wound up. Excuse me. And then that wound up being very successful and um they sold it after i left they sold it to disney for lots of money and after you left oh yes <laughs> after i left it's okay i remember seeing this spread in the new york times you know and it looked like you were one of these uh, couples in town ta- you know this very uh cosmopolitan couple in new york which you are oh but but it had this sort of um i don't know the way that i look at um the, uh, <laughs> Tory Burch or something. Oh, uh, no, <laughs> you're not Tory Burch. Kind of um, feeling of these these young entrepreneurial couples versus the the young literati and hip you know cult. Mm-hmm. The way that I actually know you, mm-hmm. um, and the and the uh, image in the New York Times was very glossy. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. Um, did that? Does that resonate? It well, I think that was true of the people who actually ran the magazine yes. and like owned it, and then I was just <laughs> this sort of hapless like I think we should you know do more essays and more like you know reporting and um but it yeah so it, it wound up being a little more um servicey than I kind of thought and by servicey can you explain that to people oh <laughs> sure um yeah it's just basically more about like you know pacifiers and strollers and things like that and things then, where you can get brand marketing to, yeah, to advertise yeah and, and I that's not something I've ever been great at um what have you f- f- 
what do you feel you're great at? Because it's easy on the outside to say, gosh, you're so good at so many things from crime reporting to writing personal Golly, essays. Thank you. Um, what is it that you feel you're great at? And um, then I'll ask, what is it that you feel you're great at and actually enjoy doing? <laughs> um, I really like reporting. So I really enjoy going and finding stories that are interesting and meeting people I wouldn't What does that otherwise. mean to you, though? Um, I, you know, I like... I like taking trips and going to random places. So, for example, for the Times Magazine, I went to Alabama and spent a few days driving around interviewing these women who were being put in prison under this sort of strange enforcement of this regional law and learning about that and meeting all these families and talking to district attorneys and kind of just trying to figure things out. I really enjoy and that's a particularly difficult time when you write a story, let's say, in defense of someone and then, um, you know, they are a complicated person and the law is complicated and then they end yeah. up back in jail. You know, how do, how do you deal with those things or, let's say, Planned Parenthood, who you thought was endorsing something, decides that they're not, even though they were. How do you deal with the, the, the politics of negotiating real life and reporting is a very subtle art. It's it's so much more fun to me to do those stories than the ones that seem really um, cut and dried. Like I I've never been good at or enjoyed advocacy um, journalism or advocacy in general because I'm just I'm too conflicted about things, um, everything. So um, so I like I like when it's murky and I like when the you know there's these um, twists of fate and um, and and complicated people who you root for and against at the same time. Can you talk about that a little bit? I was sort of alluding to it, but maybe you could um, shed light on the person I'm I'm speaking about. The oh, the woman in the yeah. Alabama story. Yes. Um, so the there was a this the story was this um, this law called chemical endangerment was being enforced in Alabama in this interesting way where the original law was intended to keep children out of meth labs, and they basically uh, the the prosecutors were saying, well, you know, it's like a meth lab. A pregnant woman who's doing math and you know it's like a child is a fetus so it was this way of doing these there, there were a bunch of personhood bills being pushed at the time saying that a fetus is the same as a child and so child abuse laws basically should apply to what pregnant women do to their fetus um, by for example taking drugs so they were they were prosecuting these women and so for example if a man in Alabama who was you know obviously not pregnant had done meth maybe they'd get a day in jail or a fine. If a Even woman, though they could impregnate a woman. Yeah, but. <laughs> while they're on that. But I know, a, I'm just putting it out there that, they, that it takes two to make a baby. Yeah. And so if, I'm, if, if someone was doing, um, you know, crack cocaine and was addicted, mm -hmm. I wonder if that would also affect the fetus, although I'm sure not the same way because of the gestation period. Right. Just, and and yeah. the whole, the whole, it was this very interesting And I'm really pro-choice, like, yeah. but it's, it is so complicated. Yeah, so yeah. complicated. So um, then if a woman did the drug, she could face murder charges if something happened to the baby, wow. even if there was no necessary, you know, connection between the two things. And the science is pretty... Um, inconclusive about which drugs affect babies most and mm -hmm. um, and whether or not miscarriage is actually caused by XYZ. So um, this woman that I that I uh, spent time with, she had been sentenced to and actually just finished serving a very long sentence. The sentence was 10 years in prison um, away from her other three children for having had a miscarriage of a baby she wanted. Um, so it was a really rough story, but also she she did have issues with drugs and so there there were relapses and there were some questions about um about what the family was like and um so the story wound up being very very complicated it was like a six thousand word story i feel like it could have been you know four times longer 
And do you still keep in touch with her? I have. Um, I've heard from the family a little bit, and I've heard that she just um, just went home like in the last few months, I guess. Because I remember reading that she really was a loving mother. That was my impression. You know, yeah. you only get those little glimpses when you spend a day or two with somebody. But, um, but you know, it's like it's kind of like anybody. Like she, there's stuff she's really good at and stuff she's not so good at. And um, and it was funny. Like she would do things. Like, say, she doesn't let the kids drink out of the water fountain in school. She packs them water bottles because she doesn't think the You know, and to be so fastidious about certain things or, mm-hmm. like, making sure they return their library books on time and making sure they do their homework and, you know, having all this list and then the sort of this other, um, these other areas maybe um, are the ones that, that get her in some trouble. She sounds human. Yeah. Um, and my example of the men, uh, mis- you know, abusing drugs and then getting someone pregnant it sounds like it has no relevance. But in terms of infectious diseases, I know with, you know, maternal, um, a- maternal child health, HIV and AIDS, sure. you know, it can come up there um, if, if someone isn't honest about what's going on sure. um, and infecting someone and that can affect the child. But the truth is, is that these issues are just so complicated as to what equals mm-hmm. um, ethics and when do I have the legal right yeah. and when am I protecting um, the adult as much as the child? You know, all of these yeah. parts, of it's fascinating and yeah. painful. So um, now that is in uh, not opposition. It's just a very different flavor than um, working on. I imagine books with Tim Gunn. Tell me about that because that sounds really fun. <laughs> That's really fun. It's so fun. I love him and we've become really good friends and we hang out a lot. Um, and and you've done three books with him, correct? We've done three books and a Kindle single. And um, yeah, he's just, he's terrific. And I, I really think that he's just a very moral, he's a moral voice for the country. And um, how does that get expressed since he, he's best known um, as being um, a f- fashion um critic and stylist and yeah but I think like one one thing that makes Project Runway a good show is that he is there in the workroom actually looking at what people are doing and treating them with so much respect and I just think he's such a good teacher the way he brings the best out of people and he, he's he's really serious about it it's not he's never been flip or um or cavalier about people he really thinks it's like this is their art they they want to do something important and he's going to help them if he can well and it's so rare at least in my industry to have people who actually show you what to do to have good managers and bosses I mean, i'm sure in a- almost any industry to have someone who who sits down and says okay this person really wants to become a good fashion designer mm-hmm. here are the steps that it takes here's the process yeah and i mean one thing that I, we just the last book we did was called the natty professor and it was about teaching because he was was a teacher for 30 years in a classroom before he was where did he on teach? project runway he taught at parsons um and before that at the corcoran and he really has a philosophy of teaching and basically about being a facilitator and not not being a boss and when will he uh, oh you know what actually let's talk about that a little bit oh, sure I remember this quote from Lao Tzu to lead as if no one knows you're leading I'm, I'm paraphrasing and, and messing it up but the, the intention of his quote or the intention of the person quoting him yeah. was to discuss the idea that Lao Tzu had of to lead is not so that everyone knows who your name is yes but to lead as if they don't even know they're being led yeah I think he would I think Tim would probably agree with that is that what you meant by facilitator? He is, yeah. I mean, he he really he just asks like tons and tons of questions. So if someone and it's true of anyone, it's true if I have a problem and talk to him, he just really wants to understand what you're trying to do and then to help. And so it's 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 many many questions and a lot of empathy um, for whatever the 
the concern is. When are you going to uh, do his his memoir uh, <laughs> or his biography? Because you know, learning about his history, uh-huh. um, being someone whose whose father I believe worked uh, for Hoover. Yes, he was Hoover's ghostwriter. I mean, you know, to have a <laughs> and to be the ghostwriter of the son of of. J. Edgar Hoover's ghostwriter. <laughs> it's full circle. <laughs> um, are you guys working on that? Well, I mean, it's he's talked a lot about his own life in Guns, Golden Rules and Natty Professor. And, yeah. you know, I, I do think he should do something at some point about his family because he, he did come from a really interesting D.C. family. Um, I think he's, he's sort of waiting um, until he's, you know. Uh, until he's one of the the last people his mother has passed away so tell him um, not to wait because I, <laughs> I, I understand the feeling but you guys can write it yes and then you can decide to publish it later it's true um I think that that I've struggled with that personally because yes. I love all of the people in my family and yeah. friends so so much right. and it's just so hard and I put off writing and writing and writing as a result mm-hmm. of that um and I'm really trying to say okay let's write now I mean he embodies the sort of John Cheever, uh, the swimming pool. You know that essay, um, but with the Washington politics. I grew up in in DC, so I'm even sure. More. I'm sure you know a lot of the um, the same folks. Well, and I understand the the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I it's one that's clearly fascinating to millions of people because there are tons of movies and books. Yeah. Um, but his particular point of view and the way that you guys work together, um, it seems to show his point of view and also your. Um, particular writing style. I will text him on the way home and tell him that you said that. Okay. <laughs> um, now, I know that you've said in other interviews that working with him was so easy. Mm-hmm. Um, have you had experience is when it's not so easy and what does that look like um, when ghostwriting? It's been, I mean, I've done, what, like nine books or something the last few years and it's been, usually it's really fun and I, I think because I really like... What equals fun for you? Fun is try, is having somebody who has a story that's interesting that you want to help them tell. And I, like, I enjoy putting books together because it feels a little like a crossword puzzle. Like I can look at a bunch of material and I feel like I can see what should go where uh-huh. and, and where the holes are. And like, it's kind of like just piecing something together. And, and I enjoy that. It's really, it's like a game for me. Have you ever written for someone who is barely literate and then all of a sudden they sound, um, you know, I don't know, completely erudite or something like that? Uh, usually I mean that one of the goals so I originally was um I thought I was going to be like a linguist that was my original goal in life and I um I did majored in Sanskrit and where I did you go I to college be a translator I started at McGill in Montreal and then I went to UT Austin uh-huh great school yeah I graduated there and um but I really thought that's what I was going to do and so I think the ghostwriting for me feels a lot like translation so it's about trying to figure out what the person's voice is and making it like the book version of that yeah how do you feel in yoga classes now when people are like chanting in Sanskrit? <laughs> I don't do yoga. I don't have the patience <laughs> for yoga. Um, I, I'm going to force you to just like come so you can hear the mantras and be like, no, that is not how they pronounce it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. My pronunciation was never very good. So I'm not, I'm not judgmental on that front at all. Um, and I've also uh, read that you, you know, work on multiple projects at once. So can you just map that out for me? Because I am floored by how many things you're doing at once oh um right now I'm only doing like a couple things and it feels really like not enough so um I like just to have you know on my computer desktop just like five different folders that are all going at the same time because then I can just do whatever I'm in the mood for in that particular hour so like if I just get on my computer then I can just pick what I feel like working on and then work on that until I'm bored and then switch 
Now, but how are you meeting all the different, I mean, you have a child, you have a life, um, and then I'm just going to go over some of the things I know. Like, let's let's take when you were working on St. Mark's is Dead, which, yeah. which which took a while to write because you're interviewed over 200 people yes. and um, you're going through archives. It's a, you know, it's a nonfiction book, so mm-hmm. it requires accuracy and fact checking mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, research. So you're working on that and simultaneously you're doing what else? I did, I think, three other books or four other books while I was doing this one. And then I was doing, I had a fellowship um, to do some more of those kind of depressing women um, and, you know, law stories. And then I also was teaching public affairs reporting at Hofstra. And um, that was a little, that was like a hard year. That was a couple of years ago. That was a lot. But, um, but basically, you know, I just would have alternate days. Like I would have a day where I was at the New York Public Library working on the St. Mark's book and then I would the next day I would do an interview in the morning for the St. Mark's book and then in the afternoon I would go and teach and then I would that night you know after my kid went to bed I would transcribe it and then the next day I would go interview somebody for the ghostwriting book and then I would write that up that day and you know it's it's just like little by little how much do you sleep I sleep okay how many hours you know seven ish and do you feel like you um I mean because to me you sound extremely organized I mean I think that I couldn't do it unless I was organized and it's really about just piles of you know like I have every time I'm working on a book I have piles sitting around my incredibly small apartment um, for each project now um you've had two essays in the live section and four four excuse me four lives and two modern loves and two op-eds it's okay okay four in the live section and two modern loves yeah and two op-eds yeah Fabulous. Thank you. Um, my real question <laughs> was actually about what's it like to um, write about your personal life and then go home? Uh, it's okay. I mean, you know, my husband reads all the stuff that I write before it gets published. It's funny. Like, every once in a while, some, like, young female reporter will be like, I think it is so great that you don't care what anybody thinks of what you write, including your husband. And I was like, where did you get that idea? <laughs> right. Like, Wait, the assumption that because it. I did it means that I'm totally on board with it. Well, no, it's like, it's just the idea that, um, that I would do something that would jeopardize my personal relationships. Like I, you know, I I love my husband and my friends and like, if I, if they're in a story I wrote, I'm going to show it to them before I publish it. And, um, they're all super supportive and not controlling. And so everybody usually is like, it's great. Just do it. I also meant what I was trying to say was that even, even when one writes it, it doesn't mean that the ambivalence isn't still there. Oh yeah. No. And I hope that's communicated in like everything I write that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Like it's all, you know, it's, it's all just questions. It's all, you know, trying to figure things out. I always think jump off the plane, even while you're screaming, while you do it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not, I don't find it interesting when people have things all, I think they think have things all figured out. It's like, I just, I, I like writing essays that help me try to put a story around something that I'm thinking about. And it seems like most of your friends, are they artists also? Is that, is that what helps? um... I mean, a lot of them are, I would say, well, a lot of them are performers because my husband's a performer. And so a lot of people, you know, um, are, you know, our closest friends. Who are some of those folks? Like Bridget Everett and Murray Hill. All employees of the month. Now, did you become friends with these people after they won the employee of the month award, including (laughs) your husband? Did that inspire the marriage? Um, I have to to look at calendars and try to figure that out. Um, But yeah, no, just people that that he knows through performing have become probably some of my good friends. And then I know a lot of other reporters and writers. So we read each other's stuff. Because I I really... um, 
cherish the freedom you you give each other. And I was curious if your family, I, I certainly have that freedom for my friends. Yeah. And these are elective relationships. So, mm-hmm. of, of, you know, that seems more feasible. With your family, we were talking a little bit about Tim Gunn, mm-hmm. you know, and his fears, which I, I struggle with. Yeah. I was curious, does that come up with your parents? Mm, I mean, not so much there, you know, because my dad's a writer. My mom was an actress. I think they are maybe not, they don't seem particularly concerned with the stuff I write. Um, yeah. They seem okay. And they, and you know, and the, the St. Mark's book, I will say real, they really liked, it made me a little bit realize like, Oh, I guess, you know, you like the other stuff I did, but you really like this. So what do you think about this one in particular? I mean, I think they liked being in it and I think they liked, um, you know, it's, it's where they, they moved and, and it was a validation I think of them choosing to be there and choosing to raise me there, even though it was kind of an insane place to have a little girl. So you move into St. Mark's, um, in 1973, I believe the same week that um, W.H. Auden passed away. I know he they wasn't there, yeah. at the time. Um, but your father d- did poetry. And, uh-huh. and, and now, um, you know, here is this great poet mm-hmm. um, moving out. And so I, I, I like to think that there is some type of... Uh, Reincarnation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, uh, um, uh, let's talk about St. Mark's is, is dead. Um, it is... On, for me, I want to hear about you after I, I say this, but um, I really highly recommend this book uh, to people in and outside of New York because it is such a terrific read um, for anyone who isn't naturally a history buff. It's a wonderful microcosm Thank that you, you can see not just how New York is built, but how America was um, in all of its glory and ugliness and beauty and defiance. Um and at the same time, if you are a history buff, I think it will fit right in with um, whatever you've been reading from Chernow or, um, you know, Jane and all the other um, well-known historians. Thank so, you. Um, okay. With that in mind, I <laughs> does that resonate to you as well? That the book's awesome? Yeah. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. um, was it hard? I mean, this is a very rigorous book comparatively. Yes. Yeah, no, and it was your it was works. definitely the hardest thing that I've done in a long time, and um, and it was a lot of drafts, so it was a lot of work. I had a really tough, wonderful editor at Norton, and he sent it back four times. So it was, um, it, and I think it made it better each time. And uh, I, you know, I I didn't want to, I didn't like, I was getting tired of just doing, I was writing for like Country Living, and and just kind of doing any kind of freelance gig that would pay the bills, and I really wanted something that might be a little bit enduring. Yeah. So I was really determined that this be um, rigorous and as good as it possibly could be. Um, so I, I want to just talk about certain aspects of it. We're not going to get to all of it, but because this show is about work, um, it was particularly um, thrilling and disheartening <laughs> in all the other uh, superlatives um, to learn about uh, it being a center of commerce from almost from the get-go, yeah. from meaning uh, when um, the Dutch took over and, mm-hmm. and the nature of building this grid. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that to, to start out with, uh, that um, you know this is coming after the uh, Lenape. Mm-hmm. Um, well, f- actually, let's just start there. I mean, the fact that um, they sold it for $24, and I imagine they sold it for $24 thinking that it was just for hunting, um, and seems, ended yeah. up selling the entire place um, to uh, Peter Minnet, Min Mui, uh, Min- Minuet, I think. Minuet, but um, but they, yeah, they. It seems like there was a real miscommunication between the Dutch and um, the Lenape about what it meant to buy something because they just didn't have the same ideas of property ownership 
So I think they thought they were selling it for hunting purposes, but actually the perception was that they now owned it, the Dutch owned it outright. I mean, it, it's it's such a uh, <laughs> um, eerie um, start in many ways to show that the Lenape, you, you slyly write about how they didn't have a sense of ownership. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that wasn't part of their society. Right. And that the... Um, <laughs> You know, basically, it's a, a tenant warfare situation with their their new landlords that they didn't know they had had as landlords mm-hmm. coming in and saying you're overstaying your welcome, yeah, and unfortunately, um, not ending up in small claims court, which I always thought was hell, but actually, <laughs> it turns out that being slaughtered is is really um, hell. Yeah. So it does, in a way, I think, prefigure this whole idea that you see even now of who who belongs here and who owns it and who who deserves to be in the East Village. And that's one thing that made me want to write the book originally was because I grew up there and my parents have been there for 45 years that, you know, I was really getting tired of people saying, well, St. Mark's is dead. It's over. And who are these like dopey 25 year olds moving in now with jobs? You know, we hate them. They don't belong here. We belong here. And, and doing the book made me realize that like, unless you're a Lenape Indian, you don't really have that claim. Like every single group that moved in replaced somebody else. And, you know, even back to the beatniks. And they, even before it was Ziggy's Follies. Oh, yeah. No, going back a- and back and back. <laughs> like going 1811, when the grid came in, everyone said, oh, New York's over. Who are these, you know, people coming in and telling us that we need streets that are straight? Like, damn them. They're ruining everything. I loved learning that that was to set up commerce and that was, um, you know, changing what Stuyvesant mm-hmm. had set up to in- ensure that commerce could get through. Mm-hmm. I mean, which makes perfect sense when you read about Robert Moses and um, Jane Jacobs. Yeah. Um, who I, b- before, sorry, I called her Jane and I don't want to be sexist. But you're because you're friends. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I apologize. I didn't, I, I didn't hope that does not come off as, <laughs> as sexist because I met Jane Jacobs as a historian. Yeah. Um, and... I also wanted to know, like, in terms of history, when you talk about, like, oh, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead. I mean, one thing that is sad is being able to remember these spaces because what happens is things get torn down. And without, you know, there are places where they have ways of um, remembering history. And here mm-hmm. we'll have little plaques right. on certain um, offices and certain houses. And it'll say this, you know, they yeah. they can't change the, the front facade uh-huh. of something. But... Do you feel sad at all that at least the history can't be remembered in that way, physically? Uh, Well, it's funny because I think because of the landmark preservation movement, there are a lot of the same buildings standing that have been there. So there are actually three of the original 1830s buildings on St. Mark's Place um, still there. And and there are a lot of businesses and places that have been preserved um, in the neighborhood and if you go to Tompkins Square Park, there's a memorial to the General Slocum disaster. There's um, memorial to the World War II soldiers. There's, you know, if you look around, you really do have these little totems of history everywhere. But how will you know that Manic Panic was there? Or how will you know <laughs> that The Dissident was published here? Or mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, you know, that was also part of what I, I wanted to do in the book was to, to say, and there's a map in there so you can walk down it and say, oh, th- this is where. And also I love the layers of history. So the same place Manic Panic was, there was a slave trader who lived there. And there the were, tombs? you know. Is that the... The, well, no, there was like a, um, there Another is this, he, he did actually go, go to the tombs. He was sent there, I think, for, for his rampant slave trading, even after it was not fashionable to be that. And, um, but I just, I love the idea that you have these, like Leon Trotsky was there and W.H. Auden was there and this mental hospital. And, you know, 
that that to me is what's really Alexander ha- Hamilton to Emma Goldman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, on the same block. I mean, that's right, um, right there between second and third. So, um, so and now I, it, for me, it makes my experience of the city a lot richer when I walk around and I, I know. I know what was here in, you know, 1810 and then also what was here in 1920. And um, it makes me feel like part of a continuum. Absolutely. I mean, the idea that people went and saw Lincoln at the Cooper um, Union, which was created by Cooper, um, you know, and and learning about Peter Cooper and his history and and why he set that up, that he valued education so much and saw that people um, were killing each other yeah. and that this might be a way out and right. used his fortune for, for good. But even then, what I love is that a lot of the neighbors thought that he was actually doing it to get a tax break. And they thought, oh, who is this jerk who's bringing all these immigrants and poor people here? And really, all he's trying to do is make some money. Well, and those issues are complicated. Yeah, they are complicated. They can coexist. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea that something, someone is completely selfless um, is a lot to put on on someone because, you know, I think that's what we've been talking about all this time. It's true. Yeah. And I think also the um, one thing that I saw again and again, though, was this like, was the arrogance that you have it figured out and that it's obvious that there's good guys and bad guys. And that, you know, and I see that today, even where people are saying like, well, obviously the NYU students are bad. And all of us, you know, cool, older punk people are good and we deserve it and they don't. And I think one thing that I that I like is just to see that, no, it's always been really complicated and it's there is no clear good guy, bad guy dynamic. Now, in addition to being um, an area of very elite and wealthy families that that came in and, uh-huh. and starting with Stuyvesant as a you know country home. Um, although he, he was um, very thoughtful, right? It was supposed to be a, a more, it was supposed to feel more like the country compared to where. Well, it was the country. It was the middle yes. of nowhere. Yes. Um, so yeah, Stuyvesant built it as a retreat because there were all these like prostitutes and pirates at the tip of the island. I so he was going to escape them. Loved that <laughs> so much. The idea of in modern day, in hindsight, looking back that someone was escaping prostitutes and pirates by going to St. Mark's versus the St. Mark's I knew um, right, exactly, which was all prostitutes and pirates. <laughs> yes, exactly, in our day. Um, so I'm going to now refute what I said before, that all these people are complicated, and talk about um, Auden again. Oh, who's just purely good <laughs> and wonderful, yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Auden? Because I, I think he was someone who seemed to be close to your heart as well. I love him. And it's I had always really liked his poetry, and then... Um, you know, learning about him, I just, I, he really is like a saint. He really is like the saint of the East Village. And the things that he did, he just, every story about him is, is more moving than the one before. He, he, he paid for friends' surgeries, um, secretly so they wouldn't know that he did it. And he, um, he married somebody to save her from the Nazis. And and he was gay and rather, um, I don't want to say pub plan public about it but he wasn't private no he had yeah he had yeah. a partner who he lived with openly Charles Isherwood. it was um no that's somebody else uh, Chester Common okay um he lived from 1907 to, to 1973 I mean it's pretty remarkable yeah and he saved that woman from the Nazis, the Nazis. and and then there's a By marrying um, her there's a story in the book too about uh his relationship with Dorothy Day who's a sort of other yes. saint of the East Village and he at one point went down from his apartment on St. Mark's Place to her um, her house of, what was it called? It was like, she basically had this mission that she'd started for the homeless, and he gave her a check for um, this bill that she had to pay. She was being accused of being a slumlord, and so she was about to go to church, or to, to court, and to plead her case, and he gave her the whole money for the, um, the fine if she was found guilty. 
And she thought he was a homeless person because he was so disheveled. And she didn't realize until she got on the subway and opened the piece of paper that had been crammed in her hand by this this crazy looking person that it had been. You was know, he the, the great poet? Um, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. But I got so excited because I remember reading also <laughs> that he's a hoarder. He was a total hoarder and he lived in filth and um, and he served martinis and jelly jars and there were tons of roaches and it was uh, it was a total mess, his apartment. Um, I loved learning about all the feminists, <laughs> for lack of a better term, uh-huh. coming out of St. Mark's, coming to St. Mark's, um, everything from... Not certainly someone who would not, you know, call themselves a, a feminist by starting a school for maids, oh. um, and then having this morality clause yeah. as to um, who got to be in there. But I, I, I would love to hear about that as well as Sarah Curie. Uh huh. Yeah. So there were. Um, it was always a, or in the, I guess mid eighteen hundreds. It was a big do gooder place, mid to late eighteen hundreds, and so you had a lot of women. Um, starting wealthier women starting schools or foundations for the poor on St. Mark's Place. And one of them was Juliet Corson, and she started a cooking school. So the rich would teach poor women how to cook for their husbands. And then down the road, you had Sarah Curry um, started the Little Missionary Day Nursery for the mothers who had to work, they had to have a place, a safe place to leave their children. And that's still an operation. And she didn't today. charge. She was, she saw herself as a missionary. She was a missionary. And oh, she, she was. Did, okay. Well, yeah. Originally she was, she came to New York as a missionary. And then, um, not only did she see herself as one, but others did too. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so yeah. And that's, but I love is that that, that it's still the same. Like it's been there, um, since 1896 and it's still more or less exactly what it was then. And it was creating a daycare for working parents. I mean, yeah. yeah, which was really radical at the time. And, and the way she got the idea was she, when she was first in the city as a missionary, she was on the Lower East Side and these kids were running wild and one ran in front of a cart and got killed. And she held the baby, you know, the little kid while it died and, um, and basically said, what is going on? Like, what can we do about this? And they said, well, where are we going to leave them? And she was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to find a place. And she did. And an even more radical establishment was uh, school was created by Emma Goldman. Yeah, the modern school, which she started on St. Mark's Place. And what it, um, it was designed to prepare children for a world without laws. She thought once, you know, anarchy really took over, um, which was imminent, that children would need to know how to, how to function. And so, um, so she, she led the school and, of course, was, you know, was shut down not too much later. And um, she was exiled. Well, she was exiled to to um, Russia, which mm-hmm. I feel so sad about. Um, <laughs> but I, I, um, it was fascinating to read about this, and she's around where Trotsky's around, and I've heard about you know uh, Marcel Duchamp uh, going to hear you know this this big debate with Trotsky, and then going off to Webster Hall to go dancing, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and this story really. Um, shows how people do all of these things together. Uh, Emma Goldman, I don't ap- approve of someone trying to as- assassinate anyone, um, <laughs> but she did try with Clay Frick, but I was uh, very excited that she was so pro-birth control. She was very pro-birth control, and actually the um, to raise the money to kill Frick, she tried to prostitute herself on 14th Street, and it didn't go very well. So. That was so depressing that she didn't find any uh, takers. Apparently not. <laughs> but you look at the pictures of her from the time, and you're like, oh... <laughs> maybe not the um, easiest thing speaking of prostitution um there was uh, there was a lot of it when you were growing up oh yeah i mean up definitely like what third avenue second avenue like yeah it was i mean just there was a lot 
of a lot of crime. There were a ton of, you know, a lot of junkies everywhere nodding out on the corner and the homelessness epidemic was major and crack was everywhere. And it was, you know, it was not the, the sunniest time in the, in the history of New York City. But also this um, incredibly vibrant music scene. And I love learning about, um, you know, the no punk and, uh, you know, punks. I mean, uh-huh. that, that, that you really get to get a detailed history and yeah. not just sort of the um, cursory okay. view of it. Yeah. Um, and so now I, I don't want to give talk too much about St. Mark's is Dead in any more about it because it is so good that I you have to go out and read it. I know I sound like Oprah talking about um, I don't know a Bridges of Mid- Madison County, <laughs> but, and it, it, I'm sure that book is wonderful too. But I, I really was enthralled with this, and I, I hope you all will go out and get it. Um, and now. Um, you are working on a follow-up to a uh, Modern Love yes. piece, you, your, your next book. Mm-hmm. So um, so I had a Modern Love over the summer that was basically about fighting with my husband over um, some some disastrous plane um, travel scenario. And, um, and then it went sort of weirdly viral. And um, my editor on the St. Mark's book, asked me to expand that essay into into a full book. Right now we're calling it How to Stay because it's based on the line from my mom that's in the article, which was, the way you stay married is you don't get divorced. And so it's just about marriage now. And I, I you know, a lot of my friends have gotten divorced and it's, and, and I get it because being married is not the easiest thing in the world sometimes, but I like it and I, I think it's worth talking about what, what makes it worth doing and um, and how you manage to hold on, even in spite of really annoying, um, you know, airline debacles. And um, I, I love that you're writing that because I always say that I can't wait to f- fall in love so then I can complain. <laughs> and may the person be standing right next to me while I do. Or always two feet away. <laughs> um, but it, it really is an issue that lends itself to someone who has the nuance and subtlety and um, wit that you do. So I'm, I'm grateful that you're tackling it. Well, thank you. Yeah. And again, like I do not, it's not an advice book and I don't have it figured out at all. And um, so it's just, it's just some ideas. Well, for anyone interested in work and all the multiple ways um, one decides to spend their time, whether it is being um, a missionary or whether it is um, being a trader um, or whether it's being a uh, rock star, St. Mark's is Dead is the perfect book um, for you to get a sense of how it's been done in the past and how you hope to um, continue on that tradition. I'm so grateful to have you here. Thank you. Oh, you're wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you for tuning in. Wasn't that fascinating? I thought it was fascinating. Whatever you thought, let me know at Katie Lazarus. Um, you can also go to employeeofthemonthshow.com um, to find out more and um, follow me on Twitter to find out um, the latest updates about the shows. Get on the mailing list at employeeofthemonthshow.com. I um, try not to send too many emails. It's usually once a month because I don't like to receive a lot of emails. So that's why I don't send too many. And as always, you are welcome to donate to the podcast. I want to thank everyone who has been. It's um, incredible and it, it goes straight to the project. So I really appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate you. I appreciate you for being you. Even if we haven't met, I appreciate you for listening and for being a special, special snowflake. Thanks. That's it. 